The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today's a big day. We've arrived at the top three in our countdown of last year's most popular book bites, as chosen by the insatiably curious users of the Next Big Idea app. So, drumroll, please. At number three, we have How to Change the Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be by Katie Milkman. If you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? Come on, I know there's something. But if you're like most people, making changes feels next to impossible. Luckily for you, though, Wharton behavioral scientist Katie Milkman has just published a deeply researched primer on how to defeat temptation, procrastination, and all the other little demons that stand between you and your best possible self. Daniel Pink says it's like having the smartest friend in the world whispering in your ear. And Adam Grant calls the book a triple threat, evidence-based, engrossing, and full of effective strategies for making smarter choices. Here's Katie with five big ideas from the book. Hi, I'm Katie Milkman, and I'm a behavioral scientist and professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. I'm also the co-founder and co-director of the Behavior Change for Good initiative, a research initiative dedicated to advancing the science of behavior change. And I'm the host of Charles Schwab's behavioral economics podcast, Choiceology. Today, I'm going to share five of the big ideas from my new book, How to Change, the science of getting from where you are to where you want to be. Big idea number one. Tailored attacks work better than one-size-fits-all solutions. I'll start with some bad news. Most attempts at change fail. Part of the explanation for that is that change is hard. But a more helpful explanation is that we don't typically think strategically about change. Instead, we try to deploy one-size-fits-all solutions that sound useful, like setting big audacious goals or visualizing success. But the thing that I've discovered in a career devoted to studying behavior change is that change comes most readily when you size up what's standing in your way and then tailor your solution to match that obstacle. Let me take a simple example that I'll come back to a few times because it's so relatable. Say the change you want to make is getting yourself to the gym regularly. If you're not getting to the gym because you find workouts miserable, the best way to change your habits and build a workout routine is going to be really different than if you love exercise, but just keep forgetting to plan time for the gym. I was trained as an engineer, and I found that thinking about change like an engineer can really come in handy. You have to figure out what forces are working against you, and then science has lots of insights to offer about what exactly you can do to overcome those particular obstacles. Big idea number two. Fresh starts are an ideal time to kickstart change. About a decade ago, I gave a talk about nudging behavior change at Google, and I got a great question. An executive in the audience asked me if there was some ideal time to encourage positive change, some moment when people are naturally primed to take the leap and dive into a new educational opportunity, start building a nest egg for retirement, or try out a new diet. The answer turns out to be yes. You're probably familiar with New Year's resolutions. But what you may not know is that New Year's is just one well-known moment 
when we experience what my collaborators and I have come to call the fresh start effect. What happens at New Year's is that the end of one year and the start of another gives us the sense that we have a new beginning. Last year, maybe you meant to quit smoking or cook more for your family, and you didn't manage to. But at New Year's, you can say, that was the old me, and this is the new me, and the new me can do it. You have the sense that the slate has been wiped clean. You're also more likely to step back and think big picture about your life at moments that feel like a chapter break in your narrative. It turns out those chapter break moments come not only at the start of the year, but also at the start of other new cycles. The start of a new week or month, the start of a semester, or the celebration of a birthday or a holiday like Labor Day, or the start of spring, can all give us a sense of a fresh start. My collaborators and I have found that people are more likely to search for the term diet on Google at these fresh start dates. And the very same people go to the gym more frequently following fresh starts. Users of a popular goal-setting website are also more likely to set new goals about their health, their finances, their education, and even the environment on fresh start dates. Meaning at the start of a new week, month, year, following holidays that we associate with new beginnings, and following birthdays. In short, we're naturally drawn to make changes around fresh start dates. And other research has shown that when you move to a new home or community, change is also more likely to take hold, in part because it's easier to break bad habits when old haunts and harmful triggers are removed. I think what's really interesting, though, is that we can encourage change more effectively when we point out fresh starts that might otherwise go unnoticed and encourage people to pursue change on those dates. In one study, my collaborators and I invited nearly 2,000 people who weren't saving adequately for retirement to either sign up for a savings plan now or on a future date. That future date fell on either their birthday or the start of spring but we randomized whether we mentioned the fresh start. So if your birthday was in three months, a coin flip would determine whether we invited you to start saving in three months or start saving after your birthday. What we found is that just mentioning fresh starts in these invitations increased the likelihood people said yes to opening a retirement account. And ultimately, mentioning birthdays or the start of spring in our mailings increased people's retirement savings by 20 to 30% over the following eight months. So if we can capitalize on the motivation produced by fresh starts, we'll be more likely to kickstart change. Of course, then the problem becomes, how to use that motivation to produce more than an ephemeral change? Big idea number three. When pursuing change, it's wiser to choose an enjoyable path than a highly effective one. Research by Ayelet Fishbach of the University of Chicago and her former student Caitlin Woolley of Cornell suggests that when we want to kickstart change and the activity required is a bit of a chore, most of us make a crucial mistake. To explain, I'll go back to my workhorse example of building a gym habit. Typically, when someone decides they'd like to get fit, they look for the most effective workout, say, the maximally efficient Stairmaster. And that's what they try to do from the start. But a small minority of people take a different approach. They look for the most enjoyable way to get in a workout say, by taking a Zumba class with a friend, even if it doesn't maximize calories burned. It turns out that this second group is onto something. Fishbach and Woolley have shown that if we're encouraged to pursue change in a way that's fun rather than effective, we persist longer. That's because a common obstacle to change is something economists call present bias. 
we tend to care a lot more about instant gratification than long-term rewards. As a result, it's really hard and rare for us to keep doing something day in and day out that's unpleasant in order to achieve a distant goal. Pretty quickly, we tend to throw in the towel if the experience itself is a drag. This is true when it comes to studying harder in school, eating right, exercising, etc. People who pursue their goals in ways that are fun stick to them longer because they aren't fighting an uphill battle. Present bias isn't working against them. I did some research years ago on one technique that can help make change fun, and I call it temptation bundling. The idea is really simple. You only let yourself enjoy a temptation, like binge-watching lowbrow TV, while pursuing a long-term goal that you normally find to be a bit of a drag, like exercising. I've used temptation bundling to stop wasting time at home on lowbrow entertainment and to turn workouts into a treat I crave. Some people temptation bundle their favorite snacks with studying, their favorite podcasts with household chores, and red wine with cooking fresh meals. It's just one way that you can turn present bias from a challenge into an asset. And my research has proven that it not only sounds good and helps me, but it also helps other people. Big idea number four. You might want to form an advice club. This idea comes from research by a brilliant psychologist named Lauren Eskris Winkler of Northwestern University. Her work suggests that when people are struggling to achieve a goal, most of us think the best way we can help is by offering them a few words of wisdom. But Lauren wondered if we had the formula backwards. She'd noticed in interviews with struggling students and professionals that when probed, many people who aren't hitting it out of the park can actually generate lots of great insights about what might help them achieve more. They just lack confidence, motivation, and a reason to introspect. Lauren had the brilliant idea that it might be helpful to flip the usual script and ask goal strivers to give other people advice. She thought that by putting someone up on a pedestal, by inviting them to coach their peers with similar goals, a few things might happen that would be helpful. First, and perhaps most importantly, it's a confidence boost to be asked for your words of wisdom. It conveys that someone believes you've got real know-how and capability, and sometimes people don't believe that they have what it takes to make a change, so a confidence boost can be a big help. Second, being invited to give your peers advice may cause you to introspect in ways you wouldn't otherwise and dredge up insights about what could work for someone else in similar shoes that you wouldn't have bothered to consider if you weren't in the position of an advisor. Finally, when you encourage someone else to make a change, you'll feel like a hypocrite if you don't take your own advice, and you're probably more likely to believe it's worthwhile advice too after you've said it, because of something psychologists refer to as the saying is believing effect. Lauren has now run numerous studies showing that asking people to give advice actually improves their own outcomes. I even got to work on one project with her showing the benefits of this tactic, where nearly 2,000 high school students were randomly assigned to a control condition or to spend 10 minutes writing down study tips for their younger peers. We found that the advice givers got higher grades in math and in the subject they'd told us they most hoped to improve in that quarter. Just from that 10-minute exercise, the effects were small but robust. You can see how Alcoholics Anonymous's well-known system of assigning new members sponsors probably not only helps the newbies, but also helps the sponsors. Giving friends and colleagues the chance to offer their peers advice when they're struggling is a way you can boost their confidence and motivation to change. But if you're looking for a way to improve your own outcomes, you might try forming an advice club. 
That's a group of people with similar goals that agrees to ping one another when anyone runs into a bump in the road and could use some advice. Getting peer support when you're down will surely help you, but you'll also likely gain benefit from giving advice. I've tried this and discovered that as I come up with useful ideas for other club members, it boosts my confidence that I too can overcome similar bumps in the road. And when I do hit those bumps, I have an idea about how to dodge them, and I'm primed to follow my own sage pass suggestions. Big idea number five, the best habits are elastic habits. The final big idea I'll share is about how to build the most durable habits. For years, I was sure the best way to build a habit was through routinization. If you asked me how to build a robust meditation habit, I would have told you that you should always aim to meditate at the same time of day and do that as consistently as possible for as long as possible, rewarding yourself for each success. Eventually, you'd have a sturdy habit. My collaborators and I were so confident of this that we ran a study to prove it. We tested two ways of building lasting habits with about 2,500 Google employees who signed up for a month-long program designed to help them exercise more regularly. We randomized people in the program into two key conditions. One group was encouraged to make all of their visits to the gym at the same time of day, whatever time they deemed ideal. As a result, about 85% of this group's workouts during the month-long program were at that same consistent time, their ideal time. Another group was encouraged to mix up the timing of their gym visits. And as a result, only about half of this group's workouts during the month-long program were at the same consistent time, their ideal workout time. Both our routine and flexible groups visited the gym at roughly the same frequency during the month-long program when we offered them some small cash rewards for exercising. But then the program ended, the rewards ended, and we looked to see which group kept going to the gym more. Who had built a more lasting habit? We were amazed to find that it was actually the group with the more variable schedule, not the group that had been so consistent about their workout times. And when we dug into our data, it became clear what had happened. We hadn't been totally off to think that consistency breeds habit. The routine group did actually keep going to the gym at their regular time slightly more often than the flexible group after our program wrapped up. But the problem was that if they missed their regular workout time, say a 7 a.m. workout, they didn't exercise at all. The flexible group, though, would still get to the gym even if they missed their ideal workout time. If they didn't get to the gym at 7 a.m., they went at 3 p.m. instead. And net-net, that meant they went more often and had a more robust habit. Seeing this pattern, our results started to make sense. What our study showed is that too much rigidity is the enemy of habit. If you have a brittle routine, an I-can-only-go-to-the-gym-or-meditate-or-study-Spanish-at-this-time type of routine, then when life throws you a curveball, as it inevitably does, everything falls apart. But if you have an elastic habit, an I'll get to the gym, meditate, or study Spanish no matter what routine, you'll be more able to withstand the inevitable bumps in the road and stick to your habits. So the big idea is to try and form no matter what habits, not only if habits, by mixing up the when of the behaviors you want to put on autopilot. Elastic habits will get you farther. Okay, those are my five big ideas. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, You'll find more like it in the book, How to Change. Thank you, Katie. If you enjoyed this book bite and you have an hour to spare, 
check out the interview Katie did with our curator, Daniel Pink. You can find it on this feed or by following the link in the episode notes. And if you want to listen to it ad-free, download the Next Big Idea app, where you can also enjoy hundreds of book bites, a new one every day. There is no better way to get smart fast. With book bites, you can read a book in the time it takes to sew a new button on your favorite sweater. Search for Next Big Idea in your app store today. Next time, how to make your life effortless. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you tomorrow.